To bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show. The voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and toquettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Tuesday, March 21st, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode 911, and coming up on today's show, in the news, New Mexico, Nebraska, and Nevada press forward on marijuana-related bills. In our Cannabis Focus, Heritage Foundation outlines how Jeff Sessions can enforce federal marijuana laws. In drug war data mining, more evidence that marijuana raids by police are more deadly than marijuana itself. Our guest today is cannabis specialist Dr. Jordan Tischler, MD, who says he doesn't care so much about strains and recommends against certain cannabis products. And in the Radical Rant, I examine the latest case of cops getting away with torturing and killing an unarmed man. Then, in hour two, the founder of a prominent marijuana parents organization threatens to, quote, punch me in the neck, end quote, but backs down when challenged to a charity boxing match. All that's coming up, but first, let's get to the news. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your Cannabis Headline News for Tuesday, March 21st, 2017. In New Mexico, a bill to add opioid use disorder as a qualifying condition under the state's existing medical cannabis program was given final approval by the legislature late Friday night and is now headed to the desk of Governor Susana Martinez. The bill adds a number of qualifying conditions to the state's medical marijuana law in addition to opioid use disorder. Also included are PTSD, Crohn's disease, ALS, hepatitis C, Parkinson's disease, and severe chronic pain, among others. The legislation would also protect child custody rights of medical marijuana patients and would prevent people from being denied organ donations just because they participate in the medical cannabis program. And the bill directs regulators to create reciprocity rules to enable non-residents who qualify as medical cannabis patients in another state to participate in the medical cannabis program. Also on Friday, in Nebraska, a bill to allow non-smokable forms of medical cannabis to treat a number of conditions, including opioid addiction, was approved by the unicameral legislature's Judicial Committee. Nebraska's Republican governor, Pete Ricketts, is opposed to his state's pending medical marijuana legislation. The bill would authorize a limited number of manufacturers and distribution centers to provide medical marijuana for people suffering from 19 different medical conditions, including seizures, anxiety, or, quote, any other illness for which medical cannabis provides relief as determined by the participating healthcare practitioner, end quote. Under the measure, patients could not smoke the drug or grow the plants. They could, however, take medical marijuana in pills, oils, lotions, and liquids, or through vaporizers. Nevada lawmakers are trying to address everything from marijuana users' gun rights to the danger that edible marijuana products pose to children. Senator Kelvin Atkinson, a Democrat from Las Vegas, introduced a bill, Senate Bill 351, which would allow medical marijuana users to possess a firearm and a conceal and carry permit. Sheriffs currently are required to deny an application for a permit to carry a concealed firearm or revoke an existing permit if someone is a medical marijuana cardholder. Senator Tick Siegerblom, Democrat of Las Vegas, co-sponsored a separate bill, SB 344, with Senator Patricia Farley. 
that revises the standards for the labeling and packaging of marijuana for medical use. The proposed legislation established limits on how much medicinal marijuana may be sold in a single package and prohibits candy-like marijuana products that appeal to children. The bill also would prevent edible marijuana products that look like cookies or brownies to be sealed in see-through packaging or any kind of packaging that children might be attracted to. The Oregon Liquor Control Commission has issued its first recall of recreational marijuana. The OLCC says samples of Blue Magoo marijuana contained a level of pesticide residue that exceeds the state limit. The Capitol Press reports the marijuana was grown by Emerald Wave Estate and sold at Buds for You in Mapleton, a community 45 miles west of Eugene. The OLCC said people who bought the pot should dispose of it or return it to the retailer. A decision on whether the U.S. Department of Justice can prosecute a Montana medical marijuana provider is in the hands of a federal judge. Jesse Walter Campbell, a Bozeman-based provider, is challenging his case based on a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision that upheld a federal regulation and said federal drug enforcement agents can't go after medical marijuana providers who are obeying their state medical marijuana laws. The problem is that the appeals court didn't address whether the provider has to prove it is in compliance or if prosecutors have to show noncompliance before filing charges. Monday saw the conclusion of a two-day evidentiary hearing into questions of Campbell's compliance. The hearing's first day took place in late February. One of Hollywood's biggest, most outspoken pot enthusiasts has retired his rolling papers. On Monday, Woody Harrelson told Vulture that he hasn't smoked pot in nearly a year. The 55-year-old, who has spent over a decade on the advisory board of Normal, said he simply had enough after, quote, just 30 solid years of just partying too fucking hard, end quote, and said the drug kept him from being, quote, emotionally available, end quote. The interviewer empathized with Harrelson, saying that marijuana use, quote, messes with my head and makes me less productive, end quote, to which Harrelson agreed, replying, quote, yeah, that was a little bit of my issue, end quote, later adding, quote, when you're doing it all of the time, it just becomes, well, you know, end quote. The interview is featured in Venture magazine. This has been your Cannabis Headline News for Tuesday, March 21st, 2017. I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, the Russ Belleville Show presents the anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Sometimes you can hear lung cancer in smokers before you see it. There's a whistling noise. It's the air bracing around a lung cancer, almost completely blocking an airway. By the time most lung cancers are discovered, it's already too late to operate. Authorised by the New South Wales Government, Sydney. This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Exclusively on RadicalRust.com. At Herbie's Cannabis Seeds, we pride ourselves on bringing you the best quality seeds from the world's most respected cannabis seed producers, all at the lowest online prices. You can find Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. All cannabis seeds are sold as souvenirs and as a means of preserving cannabis genetics. Herbie's Seeds in no way intends to condone, promote, or incite the use of illegal or controlled substances. We strongly urge all prospective customers to check their national laws prior to placing an order. Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. Proud sponsors of The Russ Belville Show and 420 Radio. You're not high. You're listening to The Russ Belleville Show. Good people don't smoke marijuana. 
All right. Well, maybe you're high, too. Warning. Hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. Or at least they pay me to say that. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we take a look at a piece that's up at the Daily Signal entitled... How Trump's DOJ can start enforcing federal marijuana law. And this information comes by way of what I believe is the Heritage Foundation, although I'm still looking for the the citation on that. The writer is Cully Stimson. Uh, yes, there we go. He is a leading expert in national security, homeland security, crime control, immigration and drug policy at the Heritage Foundation Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. So here are a dozen things that uh, the Heritage Foundation's writer believes the Trump administration should consider to ratchet back legalization in eight states so far. Number one, reaffirm support for the law. Issue a statement affirming the incoming administration's commitment to the Controlled Substances Act with the goal of reducing, not expanding, the use of marijuana in the nation. Number two. Coordinate with lower-level officials. Have the new attorney general prioritize reaching out to governors and key law enforcement officials in states that have legalized marijuana to work with them on enforcement of federal marijuana laws. Three, reassert America's drug position on the world stage. The White House should make clear that the United States continues to support the three international drug conventions and that it intends to change its domestic policy to reflect that support. Number four, up the profile of key drug enforcement personnel. Restore to cabinet-level status the position of the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, a.k.a. the drug czar, and adequately fund the office so that it can be effective. Number five, rescind and replace the August 2013 memorandum from then-Deputy Attorney General James M. Cole, that is, the Cole Memo. The Department of Justice could do this by reiterating that marijuana cultivation, distribution, and sale are against federal law, and that while states may decriminalize possession of marijuana, they may not issue licenses to sell it or commercialize it. Reiterate that the federal government is not locking up people for smoking marijuana, and that state employees are not going to be arrested, but that the Department of Justice fully expects states to not permit commercialized marijuana production and sale. Number six, select marijuana businesses to prosecute. Find a handful of cases in which large, well-funded marijuana businesses are in violation of both state and federal marijuana laws and prosecute both their management operators and financiers. A real threat of prosecution will raise the cost of capital in the industry significantly and seriously impede any operations above the cottage level. Moreover, selection of unsympathetic de defendants in violation of both state and federal law will, one, minimize political pushback, two, avoid conflict with congressional appropriations provisions, and three, clearly demonstrate the failure of the Cole Memo. Number seven, rescind the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network's guidance for banks and oppose efforts to expand banking services to the marijuana industry. 
One of the principal breaks on the expansion of the marijuana industry is its lack of access to banking. Once pot businesses have regular, unimpeded access to institutional capital, their ability to scale up will expand significantly, and the financial sector will begin to lobby in favor of expanded sales of the drug. Number eight, support state attorneys general in non-legalized states. Non-legalized states have suffered significantly from illegal diversion of marijuana from legalized states and from the apparent uptick in sophisticated cartel activity there. Support could include entering as an amicus to support the merits of the suit Nebraska and Oklahoma filed against Colorado. Number nine, prosecute those dealing in marijuana, which is illegal under federal law, using the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO. Those who engage in a pattern of racketeering activity through a corporation or other enterprise are liable for three times the economic harm they cause. RICO gives federal courts the power to order racketeering enterprises and their co-conspirators to cease their unlawful operations. Number 10. Prosecute those who provide financing for marijuana operations. Federal anti-money laundering statutes make it illegal to engage in financial transactions designed to promote illegal activities, including drug trafficking. Start with one major marijuana financier and successfully prosecute it. Number 11. Empower the FDA to take action to regulate marijuana in order to protect patients and the public. Marijuana legalization poses a public health problem, and the FDA should be tasked with investigating marijuana for chemical contamination and pesticides. Marijuana should also be subject to the standards of the rigorous criteria of the FDA approval process, which has been carefully constructed to protect consumer and patient health and safety. There you go. I thought it was 12. It's 11. 11 approaches they are suggesting to Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice. Did you hear raid state-level marijuana shops in there? No. No, Although I suppose a raid would be imminent in some of these prosecutions. I really believe that some of these efforts that they list here are options that the Sessions Department of Justice will investigate, that they will take this seriously. And we have some really tough times ahead of us. To think otherwise, I I just, I know that there's got to be some people who are painting a rosy picture of how this won't be a problem because they are really depending on that institutional capital to keep flowing. They're really depending on those financiers to keep their wallets open and to keep funding these marijuana startups. And I don't say that as a aspersion on whether or not they're evil or doing it for a bad reason. You could very well argue that we need to keep funding our marijuana startups. We need to get them these businesses as large as possible so we can fight the oncoming uh, onslaught from the federal government. So it's not to say this is a an evil intent involved. I just think that People that are saying it's going to be okay and that we can work with the uh, Sessions Department of Justice on this are just not quite seeing the full picture. Uh, A lot of people who are involved in the marijuana industry come at this. uh, They may be younger folks, maybe people in their 30s who didn't live through the Just Say No 1980s, who didn't live through the War on Drugs 1970s, who didn't experience the insane level of illogic and irrationality that can be brought to bear in a moral panic, in a social crusade, in a culture war that this war on marijuana has always been. We've got a whole generation of people who have grown up, literally have grown up always knowing there's such a thing as medical marijuana. We have a whole generation 
for whom medical marijuana is a natural frame that they were born into. It's not some uh, marketing scheme or some change in lingo that was brought to bear, something that was unfamiliar. This is the frame in which these people have grown up. And I think some of the younger folks that are advising on this are, are, are so beholden to that frame, are so within this idea that if only people knew the facts, if only they understood it was a medicine, if only they knew it didn't really harm people, why people's minds would change. And to some extent that works on people who are receptive to change, but to the people who are antithetical to change, who are resistant to that change, it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. It just sounds like a bunch of white noise. We need to understand that this is a culture war and that the reasons underpinning it are not the reasons they are giving. We've got to protect the children. We're worried about the traffic, etc. The reasons underlying this prohibition on marijuana and this continued fight by people like the Heritage Foundation and Project Sam, this continued fight against it is in the service of protecting other industries, protecting the rehab industry from losing the clients that they get automatically sentenced to their rehabs through drug courts, half of which are people that are busted for pot. We find that more than half of the people who go to rehab for marijuana are sent there by the criminal justice system, the biggest percentage of any drug that people seek rehab for. And of course, that benefits big rehab because when you get a bunch of pot smokers in rehab and you threaten them with jail if they don't stop smoking pot and they fail a pee test, since pot isn't that addictive, they go, okay, I'll stop. And then what do you know? They graduate the drug court. The statistics look good for the rehab, look good for the court. Everybody praises how well this program works because it got people who weren't addicted in the first place to stop using pot. This is in service of the pharmaceutical industries, the alcohol industries that don't want to see that competition, especially the pharmaceutical industry that knows there is a 25% reduction in opiate use, in painkiller use, that pill use in general goes down when people have access to a safe, natural cannabis alternative. This is in protection of the prison industry, the private prisons that depend on those beds being filled in state prisons to continue manufacturing their profit, to continue providing slave labor for corporations that pay 17 cents an hour to people to make Victoria's Secret panties or to book uh, travel on Greyhound bus. There is so much involved in this oil and timber and so much more that all want to see marijuana legalization brought to a halt, to see it rescinded, repealed, destroyed, if at all possible. And this, this Daily Signal piece at DailySignal.com, listing 11 ways they want to try to do that, should give everyone pause and should get people to start thinking a little less about working with this administration and a little bit more about how we're going to fight this administration. How are we going to stop them? How are we going to raise enough public hue and cry to avoid what could be a disaster for this industry and for this movement over at least the next four years? We have a big fight in front of us. I just want everybody to go into this clear headed and maybe I'm blowing it way out of proportion. Maybe I'm being a little hyperbolic here, a little too paranoid and sky is falling. 
And if we get through four years with no major problems, you have my permission to tell me I was quite, quite wrong. I will take it. I have no problem with that. I'd love to be wrong in this case. Sorry, as motherfucker got nothing on me, right? Absolutely right, Barack. We'll talk about that in an hour, too. Anyway, we got to take a break. It's 20 after the hour. Happy 420 to our friends in the Rocky Mountains and the rest of the mountain time zone. We'll be right back with some drug war data mining. Washington Post taking a look at how marijuana police raids are far more deadly than marijuana itself. You know Herb Thrasher from the Herb Thrasher Flower Hour. Now get ready for Herb Age Designs for the proud cannabis consumer. Herb Age Designs, lifestyle gear for the 420 friendly. Herb Age Designs, we've got frisbee golf discs and durable hemp gear. Herb Age Designs, we've got shot glasses, drinking glasses, coffee mugs, and beer cozies. Check us out on Facebook and online at HerbAgeDesigns.com. And follow Herb Age and Herb Thrasher on Twitter. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. Tokers, there's no good reason to get your dog stoned. While it might not harm them physically, imagine being a dog who already begs for treats all day, and then imagine that dog having the munchies. Not cool. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Today in the Drug War Data Mines, we take a look at the Washington Post Wonk blog, where Christopher Ingraham has taken a deeper look into some of the numbers we reported on yesterday. The New York Times came out with a report that dealt with the the issue of no-knock police raids, of the surprise raids bashed down the door, usually for drugs, and the fact that some 80-odd people have been killed in these raids between 2000, I think it was 10 and 2016. So these uh, raids, 85 of them, 85 deadly SWAT raids, he took a look at the data, dug deep into it, re- read through the cases to figure out what drug were people involved with, what crime was this involved with. And what he found was that 85 deadly SWAT raids since 2010, 20 were suspected marijuana sales or uncovered evidence of marijuana. 20 people killed by cops since 2010 in no-knock raids where the drug in question was marijuana. 20 people. 41 of the people were for sales, suspected sales of other drugs. So 61 of the 85, about two-thirds of them, a little more than two-thirds, are people losing their lives because cops busted down the door over drugs. 24 of the 85 raids were for other crimes. Just 24. Now, some of the people who were killed in these raids, Chris Fringerham writes, 
29-year-old Jason Westcott of Tampa, who was shot and killed by police who stormed his home and observed him with a firearm. Westcott never fired his gun. The police uncovered a total of 0.2 grams of marijuana at Westcott's residence. Not enough to fill a typical joint. 0.2 grams? As, as the comedian Ron White says, you know what I call it? We got 0.2 grams of marijuana. I call it out of marijuana. <laughs> Time to hit the store. Another Trevon Cole of Las Vegas, who was targeted for a raid after undercover officers purchased 1.8 ounces of the drug from him. Now, first of all, who sells 1.8 ounces? Uh, this was probably sold as two ounces and the short. Anyway. Uh, Ingram continues, Cole was unarmed and was shot and killed by an officer as he was trying to flush marijuana down a toilet. His family eventually received a $1.7 million settlement from the police. No, they didn't. They did not receive a $1.7 million settlement from the police. They received a $1.7 million settlement from the taxpayers. Those cops didn't have to pay $1.7 million out of their own pocket. And another person killed in one of these raids, Lavonia Riggins, also of Tampa, who became the subject of a raid after undercover agents purchased marijuana from him on three occasions. Riggins was in bed at the time of the raid. He didn't respond to officers' demands, and when the officers moved toward him, Riggins made a quick movement. He was shot and killed. The raid turned out no firearms and a small amount of marijuana. 70%. Of these people killed in these raids on over drugs. Now, the people who defend this, the cops who say, well, we got to do it. They say, well, we got to protect the cops. We got to protect the officer's safety. An Arkansas SWAT commander told the New York Times, quote, these are dangerous people we're dealing with. If you have a dope house next door, there's probably nothing the police can do that would be overreacting. End quote. Nothing. If someone's got drugs in their house, there's nothing the cops could do that would be overreacting. Folks, I was alive when the cops used a helicopter to drop a bomb on a group in uh, Philadelphia, <laughs> right? I guess that wouldn't be overreacting, according to this Arkansas SWAT commander. At the conclusion of the article... Christopher Ingraham writes about Henry McGee, who uh, was killed in a pre-dawn raid of his, his home in Texas. An informant, a snitch, said he was growing a dozen pot plants. When the raid was going down, McGee grabbed a semi-auto and started firing in the direction of the door that the officers had just battered down. His living girlfriend, four months pregnant at the time, thought they were being robbed. When McGee and his girlfriend heard the police announce themselves, they immediately surrendered. By then, police investigator Frederick Souders lay dead on the floor. They later recovered 10 marijuana plants and a quarter pound of marijuana. So the cops break down the door. I'm sorry, and I, I said that uh, uh, McGee was killed. Not McGee was killed. The, McGee, McGee killed the cop. McGee shot the cop. It took a grand jury just 12 hours to acquit McGee of capital murder. One of the jurors told the New York Times, quote, all of us felt that if I were in bed and heard anything that made me get up and get a gun, and all of a sudden my door explodes in, I'm shooting. 
Why in the world would you do a full-out assault on a guy growing pot? End quote. And that's something else to point out in these raids. It's not just the 85 people that were killed in the raids, not just the 61 people who were killed over drugs in these raids. It's also cops that get killed. 13 cops since 2010 have been killed in these raids by citizens exercising their Second Amendment right to defend their homes against violent intruders. I don't want to see cops killed. I don't want to see cannabis consumers or any drug users killed. This use of SWAT teams was originally to deal with people barricaded with hostage situations with extremely, extremely tough situations. Somebody growing pot plants is not that situation. You can't flush a pot plant. You can't flush easily a felony felony amount of weed. All right. Stay tuned. Next, our guest is Dr. Jordan Tischler, MD. We're going to be talking about cannabis strains and medical use when we return. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Get your tickets now for the Oregon Marijuana Business Conference happening one day only in Eugene, Oregon on Friday, April 28th. You'll learn all about the latest OLCC regulations for adult-use cannabis, including testing requirements, tech and branding, taxes and distribution, and the latest developments in medical marijuana regulations. OMBC features networking with Oregon's leading experts in marijuana, including State Senator Floyd Przanski. You'll also get to hear from author, actor, and punk rock icon Henry Rollins delivering the keynote address. Early bird pricing is available for conference only and VIP passes, which gets you access to the VIP networking events featuring Henry Rollins and other speakers. It's the 2017 Oregon Marijuana Business Conference. Tickets available now at OregonMBC.com. That's OregonMBC.com before April 14th to get your early bird pricing. OregonMBC.com. The Russ Belleville Show. We're as much like Cheech and Chong as ordinary Americans are like the Three Stooges. Hey, Mo! Normal stands for responsible adult cannabis use. If cannabis use is causing problems in your life, consider taking a break or seeking medical assistance. Consider ceasing cannabis use if you have a family history of mental illness. Don't drive or operate heavy machinery while impaired by cannabis use. Cannabis use is not without risks, even though the risks are far less than those posed by legal drugs. While humans have been using cannabis for medicinal purposes for over 5,000 years, medical science is only beginning to unlock the secrets of the endocannabinoid system and the promise of cannabinoid medicines. Join us now for the latest cannabinoid medicine update. Welcome back, everybody. And today in our cannabinoid medicine update, we're speaking with Dr. Jordan Tischler, MD. Uh, Jordan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great Give to be our, here. Thank you so much. Give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself. Uh, what is your specialty and, and what company are you working with? Ah, um, so uh, I started out uh, going to Harvard Medical School a million years ago and um, trained in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is one of the major hospitals here in the Boston area. Um, and I've spent the last 15 years as an emergency physician for the VA. 
And then after that, or sort of uh, in conjunction with that, then I um, started my own cannabis practice, uh, which I now have several clinics, and uh, that's called Inhale MD. Uh, if anyone wants to look at our website, they can go to inhalemd.com. We've got hundreds of articles on various subjects relating to cannabis medicine uh, there for people to, uh, to learn from. Excellent background, and I applaud the work that you're doing out there on the East Coast, where medical marijuana is a little bit of a different uh, different uh, issue than it is out here on the West Coast, where we've had it for a longer period of time. Could you give our listeners a, a little look at what it's like in Massachusetts, dealing with the bureaucracy, dealing with your medical marijuana program there as a specialist? Yeah, you know, I think that um, there are a number of things that we in Massachusetts have really done very well. And then there are a number of things where it's kind of um, been more difficult. Um, you know, our law, I think, is a is wonderful and, and, and really, in many ways, uh, I think, could set a tone for the national way of looking at it. You know, because one of the things that we've done is we've got a list of eight conditions, but those conditions are not it. Those conditions really um, uh, basically are there as examples because following the, the list of conditions in the law uh, is a statement and any other conditions that are severe and debilitating as, you know, deemed by the licensed physician. I didn't get the wording quite right there, but, um, you know, the gist of that is that lets us actually practice medicine, you know, um, in states where there are simply a list, I mean, my my point of view is you've just relegated your doctor to a monkey, um, mm -hmm. right? Uh, my job then becomes, um, do you have something and is it on this list? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure you really need me to figure that out. Um, but here in Massachusetts, really those conditions, which, you know, include HIV and AIDS and MS and sort of all the things that you would expect that list to, to include, really are examples of what it is that the spirit of the law had intended for us to be treating, but it allows us as physicians to, to get in there and say, well, you know, PTSD isn't on the list, but that's fine because PTSD certainly meets the criteria for severe and debilitating in certain circumstances, and cannabis works very well for it, so we will go ahead and treat you. Uh, chronic pain isn't on the list. But quite frankly, chronic pain is very wonderfully receptive to cannabis. So, you know, that would be my number one, you know, the number one presenting complaint to me is pain in one sort of, a, of another. Now, uh, so I think it, that that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's a, that's something that all of these uh, medical cannabis laws should have. And I love the point you make about a doctor just being, you know, somebody that's checking something off of a list rather than actually having a relationship with the patient and being able to determine that cannabis is good for the condition they have, regardless of what the list says. Has there been any pushback from the your your health board, your your medical board in, in Massachusetts regarding this or or? Or any physicians who've been counseled about being loose with the recommendations? Um, I guess there's been a little bit. Um, we've seen a couple of newspapers get a hold of the statistics from the Department of Health here, um, you know, and they say things like, look, um, uh, you know, the way that the, the statistics are done is that they count all of this, the people who fall into the uh, diagnoses that are on the list, and then everything else is other. And so they say that the newspaper said things like, well, look, 90 percent of patients fall into this other category. So clearly the system is being abused. 
but it didn't take very long for any, everyone to go, no, it's not being abused. It's just that, you know, there are only eight conditions on the list and they're fairly infrequent. You know, they're, they're low incidence. Uh, thank goodness, for example, for MS. Um, we just don't have that many MS victims, uh, but lots of chronic pain. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's abuse going on. So I think they were, you know, that quickly passed. And then there was, um, there were a few, physicians, uh, you know, I think every state wrestles a little bit with there are going to be some physicians who um, don't uh, view this in with the seriousness that it should. And so we get into, you know, the card mill. And there are there is, you know, one particular group here um, whom I certainly won't call out by name, but they're, you know, more apt to um, give cards to patients um, uh, with with less indication and uh, and and not follow them particularly closely and such like that and so a few of their providers kind of got called out for having you know thousands of patients under their name as opposed to sort of the rest of the gang which had sort of you know hundreds of patients under their name or even low thousands and so that that created some friction and there was some discussion but ultimately even that has um, has not really panned out, you know, to be a big issue. We certainly don't have a ton of providers in the state, but, you know, it's my contention that part of that is um, based around uh, this sort of bad assumption that I think has rolled out nationally um, from the original California model, which sort of implies that any doctor, most importantly the primary care folks, are going to take this on. And uh, I think that in reality, when you think about it, primary care providers have 15 minutes with a patient to discuss their medical care from top to bottom, head to toe, inside and out, right? And, and they're barely kind of holding their nose above the waterline doing that. So to introduce a complex new medication uh, that requires not only a knowledge base that they don't readily have, but also um, a lot of um, uh, hand-holding and advising for patients, at least under an ideal circumstance, um, I think that's just sort of a non-starter. And by contrast, uh, my practice, I don't do anything other than cannabis medicine in that visit, and I spend an entire hour with each new patient. So, you know, contrast that with the primary care doctors, you can see that that's really untenable for them. Um, and what I do is I spend a lot of my time speaking to my colleagues. Um, it's, it's largely why I started my practice um, to provide them with enough education that they could feel comfortable having patients on medical cannabis, but not necessarily do the medical cannabis themselves, but rather to say, look, I, now I understand the indications. Now I understand what it means for these patients to be on this medicine and I'm not afraid of it but I don't have the wherewithal and the time to do this, but it's great because my buddy, Dr. Tischler does this, so I refer. And so it's really become, I think, in my view, very much more of a specialty of medicine than this idea that just anybody's gonna handle it. We're speaking with Dr. Jordan Tischler, MD. He's a cannabis specialist at inhalemd.com in the Boston area and throughout. Is it just Massachusetts at this point? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. I've been trying to expand my reach for the sake of patients who are, you know, needed. And so in Massachusetts is the only place I can actually write the recommendation, but I do do online consultation 
with patients all the time across the country in which I can at least, you know, educate them uh, on a real science-based uh, approach that then, you know, they can go in their local community and get somebody to provide them the recommendation, which, you know, may or may not, as the state of things uh, exists now, in, uh, include the kind of in-depth um, counseling that really should be part and parcel of any uh, physician interaction around this stuff. So, yes, we have a bit of a national reach then. That's that's good to hear. Now, in an earlier email, you discussed with me some of the topics we might talk about, and you got one that, that really caught my attention, and that is <laughs> one that might be a little controversial, and it's how you mentioned you don't care so much about strains of cannabis when it comes to medical use, but more dosage and uh, a route. So uh, it, are, are we not to check for sativa or indica or purple kush or whatever we particularly like? I mean, what's your take on that? Well, I think you just, first of all, I knew that was a subject you were going to gravitate to, so I put it in there advisedly. I think <laughs> that, you know, you just you just hit the nail on the head, which you said, you know, purple kush or whatever we might like. And I think that that's really the issue. When I think about um, strains, I don't think, I'm not suggesting that they aren't different. I'm suggesting that in most circumstances, those differences are more about preference than they are about medical outcome. Mm, okay. And that's a bit of a, 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 you know, a splitting of hairs. But when I look at the response to treatment and, uh, and, and get the feedback from my patients, what I'm finding is that the strain just doesn't seem to be as important as other factors. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that the strains don't make you feel different. But in some ways, it becomes more a question of whether you like orange lollipops or grape lollipops, but they're all lollipops, so you're going to get the benefit of the lollipop. All right. That's a fair point, and I really appreciate you elaborating on that. Uh, another issue that's of great import these days, especially in the Northeast, New England area, the uh, opiate overdose epidemic. Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, keeps bringing it up. A lot of people keep bringing this up, and I just want to get your take on it and how cannabis uh, could and would help in that regard. I think it's a wonderful thing, you know, uh, not the opiates, but the cannabis. Um I, you know, spent 15 years being an emergency room physician. God knows I saw plenty of opiate addiction and opiate overdose. Um, and, you know, I've always known myself and had a reputation for being quite stingy with opiates um, during my time there, uh, largely because I had seen the troubles that they could cause. And uh, But at the same time, I think it's very, very important for us to understand that when it comes to pain, there aren't a whole lot of choices for treatment. If you really think about it, um, there's Tylenol, right, which is in a class by itself, and then there's um, what we call non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs, which includes Motrin and, and Naproxen and all those sorts of things, and then there are opiates, and really, that's all you got, unless you can bring in cannabis, which thankfully now more and more we can. And what we found is that, number one, for chronic pain, opiates aren't really particularly very good. They may be better than nothing, but they're not particularly effective. And when you compare them head-to-head -head for mild to moderate pain, at least, um, you find that cannabis is equally effective, and we know that it's far safer. So to my thinking, it's crazy not to choose the safer option. Absolutely. Just we have all this have all this history we have to get past. And I think we're 
very, very slowly going in that direction. Um, and, you know, a lot of the stuff that um, is inhibiting that at this point is either, you know, um, ignorance, um, you know, which we can overcome, or some sort of more willful thing, uh, as in the case perhaps of Mr. Sessions, who seems to, um, uh, you know, benefit or or seems like he is in favor of the, you know, for-profit uh, prison system and uh, et cetera, where there are really benefits from this continued kind of drug war behavior. One final question, Dr. Tischler, uh, with uh, medical cannabis, it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of situation. Are there any sorts of products you don't recommend to certain patients? You know, I, yes, absolutely. I think that one of the issues that, that always seems to be uh, a problem is the industry kind of wagging the dog here. And um, so I think that there are lots and lots of folks out there that are very well-intentioned um, and maybe per- relying more on their own experience and have developed things, uh, <clears throat> products that, that, you know, when we actually study them, don't seem to pan out very well. Um, so, you know, um, sublingual absorption, uh, of homebrew tincture doesn't seem to absorb very well. Um, uh, orally ingested uh, cannabis oils we know aren't particularly well absorbed. Um, on the other hand, edibles, oddly enough, tend to be very well absorbed, comparatively speaking. But my baseline is to aim, uh, in most conditions, for some sort of um, inhaled cannabis. And notice that I say inhaled and not smoked because I don't recommend smoking. Um, even though the data is somewhat reassuring in that regard. But I think that, you know, vaporized whole flour uh, is a good starting point for most illnesses. Um, and then sometimes we add an oral, meaning an edible or something to that effect. But things like um, the tinctures, as I've mentioned, uh, topicals, we know that very, very little uh, um, absorption through the skin um, unless, of course, you do something very pharmacologic to it, like add uh, detergents like DMSO, which then kind of makes me question why you're going there in the first place. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there, are, there are things I, I think are very effective, and then there are things that I think, you know, are more kind of like a product in search of a need. Mm. Well, thank you for your perspectives on that. We appreciate it. Dr. Jordan Tischler, MD, is a cannabis specialist at InhaleMD.com in Massachusetts. Appreciate you coming on the show, and we hope to talk to you again sometime. Thanks, Russ. Great to talk with you. Take care. All right, folks, stay tuned. We've got a radical rant coming up next. Once again, boiled, beaten, choked, and shot, and the cops get away with it again. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. You're not high.
You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. People will smoke marijuana in pot stores right next to schools, daycare centers, and churches. Okay, well, maybe you're high, too. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. Is this right? Just try not to drool quite so much on the end of it. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. Total war against public enemy number one. Ten federal criminal penalties for the one ounce of marijuana. Marijuana is probably the most dangerous drug. Legalization is just another word for surrender. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. This is not medicine. This is a cheat and charm show. Because people use less drugs. I am here. That was that was the point. I think it would be a mistake to legalize. Negative reports coming out of Colorado. Don't smoke marijuana. Darren Rainey was a schizophrenic man who was locked up in Miami-Dade County's jail for cocaine possession. As caged mentally ill people sometimes do, he smeared shit all over his cell and himself. Four Four guards decided to punish him by locking him in the shower and turning it up to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. For two hours, Darren Rainey endured the torture as the guards laughed and asked, Is it hot enough? This was documented by Harold Hempstead, a prisoner who was housed directly above the shower. Guards had been using the shower to punish inmates before, and Hempstead kept track of the names and dates of at least eight other prisoners so tortured. Hempstead's diary noted that Darren Rainey screamed, Please take me out. I can't take it anymore. He kicked the doors and yelled in pain until finally he collapsed on the drain, causing the near boiling water to pool around his body, cooking it. The Miami New Times reports, quote, He was found crumpled on the floor. When his body was pulled out, Nurses said there were burns on 90% of his body. A nurse said his body temperature was too high to register with a thermometer. And his skin fell off at the touch. End quote. That was June 23rd, 2012. On Friday, Miami-Dade State Attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle announced that none of the four guards two of whom have since been promoted, will be facing any criminal charges. Really? Stella Liebeck is a name you may not recall, but if I said McDonald's hot coffee lady, you'd probably remember the case. Stella Liebeck won a $3 million judgment in punitive damages against McDonald's when a cup of their 180-degree coffee spilled onto her lap, causing third-degree burns. And despite what you may think you know about that story, no, she wasn't driving when the coffee spilled. Her car was pulled over. She was sitting in a parking lot. She had it in her lap while she was trying to put sugar and cream in it 
and it spilled onto her sweatpants. And since the sweatpants kept it sticking to her, she received 90, she received third degree burns on her crotch, on her inner thighs, had to have multiple surgeries to correct that. McDonald's had done this numerous times before. Numerous people had been burned before because their standard operating procedure in the manual was to keep the coffee at between 180 and 190 degrees. So she can win a $3 million punitive damage from McDonald's for 180 degree coffee spilling on her lap. But you can lock a man into a 180 degree shower for two hours, burn 90% of his body and kill him. And no prosecutable crime took place. According to the Miami Dade police's report, quote, the shower was itself neither dangerous nor unsafe. The evidence does not show that Rainey's well-being was grossly disregarded by the correctional staff. End quote. A 180-degree shower that an inmate cannot control, that is being used to torture him for two hours, is neither dangerous nor unsafe. Torturing a man with scalding hot water for two hours leading to his death while you laugh and ask, is it hot enough? doesn't show gross disregard by the correctional staff. The coroner in this case is blaming Rainey's death on an undiagnosed heart condition and his schizophrenia. So boiling a man with an undiagnosed heart condition into a heart attack isn't any sort of crime we can prosecute there in Florida. Turning a man into a human brisket where his skin is literally falling off his body to the touch is not something that the state attorney thinks ought to at least go before a jury. I'm not even asking that these officers, these guards necessarily be punished or, or unless a jury finds that they did commit a crime, but for one woman to decide in this case that no crime was committed to not even let this go to trial, to not even have this heard by a jury, is unconscionable. How many more times will cops get away with this kind of blatant disregard for human life? Eric Garner, killed by a police officer who puts him in an unauthorized chokehold, ignoring his pleas of, I can't breathe. That officer was never indicted by the grand jury. Freddie Gray, Placed in the back of a Baltimore police van without seatbelts, taken for a rough ride by the cops, a drive that jostled Gray in the back of that van like dice in a cup. Gray was killed, found to have three fractured vertebrae and a crushed voice box. Now, that case did go to trial, but one officer's trial ended in a mistrial and the other three officers were found not guilty. Walter Scott running from a police officer and shot in the back, all captured on video, the man's yards away from the cop when he's shot in the back. That officer's trial ended in a mistrial. The list goes on and on and on. There are numerous websites that chronicle the cases of police who are or people who are routinely killed by the police Police who are then never indicted or whose cases end in a mistrial or an acquittal. The cases where cops who kill civilians 
are found guilty are so rare that when I see one, I gasp in amazement. The case in August 2016, where a Virginia cop was convicted on voluntary manslaughter charges, was the first one I'd seen in three years. Seriously. According to the Huffington Post, there were no convictions for murder or manslaughter for cops killing civilians in the line of duty in the entire year of 2015 and the entire year of 2014. And in that Virginia case, the 2016 case where he was actually convicted, that was the second time that Virginia cop had killed an unarmed man in the line of duty. He shot a guy 11 times in 2011, but the grand jury didn't indict him then. These cops are the few bad actors that our attorney general believes aren't representative of the rest of police. Jeff Sessions said last week in Richmond, Virginia, quote, In recent years, law enforcement as a whole has been unfairly maligned and blamed for the unacceptable deeds of a few bad actors. End quote. Well, maybe, just maybe, it would be easier for us to hold law enforcement in esteem if, as the Attorney General promised in Virginia, we would, quote, enforce our laws and put bad men behind bars, end quote, even if those bad men wear a badge. Otherwise, there's only so long that a free people with a Second Amendment are going to put up with this kind of injustice. I don't want to see violence in the streets. I don't want to see riots. I don't want to see unrest, mayhem, anarchy. But no justice, no peace. And you can, it's not a threat. It's just a rule of life. It is a natural law. This country was founded and continues to be made up of citizens with a strong love of freedom and a strong respect for justice and fairness. And to continually, night after night, see person after person after person after person on cell phone videos with numerous witnesses being executed by the police. And to see these cops get off when a state attorney refuses to indict, refuses to press charges. I'm sorry, this is an untenable situation. Anytime a cop kills someone in the line of duty, it should be a federal investigation. There shouldn't be the local yokel police sheriff and the local yokel coroner and the local yokel state attorney being able to conspire to keep things out from in front of a jury or to conduct their cases with tainted jury pools with local media hyping the police's version of the events to the point where we can't get convictions in these cases. That's all the time we got for our first hour. Thank you, podcast listeners, for joining us on CannabisRadio.com. For those of you watching live on YouTube, stay tuned. We're back with Hour 2. We're going to talk about uh, a certain founder of a parent's marijuana group who wants to punch me in the neck. Then we'll also talk about other stories, including Washington and Colorado data on youth use, a pro-marijuana church in Alabama, California businesses, cannabis businesses taking on the Teamsters, and how the Swiss are perfecting low-potency marijuana. For everyone here at Delta 9 Studios, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, take care of each other, tokers! Hey, 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 hey,
This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You're going, you're giant, you're going.